Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dwight D. Eisenhower. He's gone down in history as one of America's greatest presidents and one of its greatest military leaders. But how did Ike, as he was known, rise up to become the towering figure that he's remembered as today? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take us through Eisenhower's remarkable personal and professional history, I'm joined by award-winning journalist and member of the White House Press Corps, Paul Brandis. Paul also runs the popular At West Wing Reports Twitter account, and he's the author of many, many books on the US presidency. So sit back and enjoy this history of Dwight D. Eisenhower, from his first entry into the US military, West Point, in 1911, through to the Second World War and his Cold War presidency. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? James, fine. Thank you so much for having me on. Not a problem at all. It is great to have you here. With your expertise on the US presidency and US military, I'm really keen to tap into this and to dig deep into, I guess, arguably one of America's greatest military leaders and greatest presidents, Dwight D. Eisenhower. So maybe take us back through history to Eisenhower's youth. When was he born? Where was he brought up? Well, just uh, we'll go backwards here, and I'll say that just as a presidential historian, in 2021, C-SPAN, which is a uh, kind of a U.S. cable channel, they do a survey of historians around the country, and I was honored to participate in that. And we rank all the presidents on 10 different categories. Eisenhower came out as the fifth greatest president ever, which is really saying something, and they have 10 different categories on which they judge a president. And a lot of these categories, Eisenhower learned as a boy when he was growing up. He was born in 1890 in Texas. He's the third of seven sons, grew up in a very religious family, was disciplined. His mother was very disappointed being sort of a Quaker kind of a woman, very disappointed when he went on to West Point, but that is the path that he chose. But he grew up in a very religious, very disciplined, strict family in the heartland and with all of the kind of the values that we think of when we think of the middle part of this country. He was conservative. He was strict. And you pointed out something, by the way, in the pre-chat 
that is a really interesting point. In 1890, when he was born, of course, most of the country did not have electricity. The car, really, the automobile was not even close to being mainstream. The airplane was still about 13 years from being invented. All of this, it was technologically very different. And when you fast forward to when he was commander of uh, European forces during World War II, and then president, boy, talk about rapid, vast change. That is what he grew up in, and he took all of his conservative values to all of these institutions that we're going to talk about him in West Point, and then the Army, and then Columbia University, and NATO, and then the White House after that. Just a fascinating individual to study. And a remarkable time to be alive. Yeah, so for our listeners, me and Paul were were nattering away before we started recording, and we can just natter away again now. (laughs) I was just just saying, I find it fascinating that, you know, this man who becomes president is born in the 1890s, and by the time he's president, he's dealing with a world where he has to calculate and devise strategy around dealing with intercontinental ballistic missiles and jet fighters and super high-tech warfare. It is a a strange, strange period to live in of immense human advancement like that that I can't really find comparable in history. Well, it's really fascinating. He died in 1969, and we mentioned the first flight in 1903. When you consider, and this shows how rapidly technology advances. He was 13 years old when the Wright brothers first flew in 1903. When he died 66 years later, he died just a couple of months before Apollo 11 landed on the moon. But think about that, 1903 to 1969, James, just 66 years, easily within the span of a person's lifetime from Kitty Hawk to the moon. So that is just one example of how quickly and dramatically technology changed. And of course, it just wasn't the space program, it was everything. Mass media and transportation and science and medicine, everything. We're going through kind of a similar rapidly changing world right now, but I suppose that's another conversation. That can be our our next podcast. Perhaps when you write that book on From Kitty Hawk to the Moon. I think that's a book that I would certainly read. But a lot of young army officers at this point in time become beguiled by air power. And they go off and they spend their life trying to perfect it. I'm thinking about people like General H.H. Arnold, who becomes a top general in both the Army and then the first head of the US Independent Air Force. But Eisenhower isn't beguiled by air power. He sticks as a a kind of a ground base. Well, he's a tank man, actually, isn't he? He he starts leading tank corps. Yep. Well, he'd been in the Army since 1911 when he enrolled at West Point, graduated in 1915. And boy, if you are an army officer, that's pretty good timing because America entered World War I in 1917. But he was dying to go to Europe and get involved in the fight, but he was denied that request. Instead, what he did was he was given command of a unit that trained tank crews. The tank was relatively new technology then, and World War I was really the first conflict in which it was used. So that is what he did. I don't think he was particularly happy about it. If you're an army officer and there's a world war, for God's sake, you want to get involved. But he was a good soldier. He followed his orders, and that's what he did. So meantime, as you mentioned, 
James, you know, here comes uh, aviation, which played kind of a big role in World War One. It was uh, would obviously be much bigger in World War II, but he was not involved in the growth of air power really at all until he became head of European Command. Yeah, absolutely. But we've got a little way to go before we get to that point. What is Eisenhower's first real deployment, I guess? Well, between the wars, he served under various generals. It was really a period where he started to make the contacts that would really propel him up the ladder. He met, obviously, he served under Douglas MacArthur, and we can talk a bit more about that in just a couple of minutes. But uh, George Marshall, who arguably perhaps the most prominent soldier of the 20th century, perhaps not the best well-known, but just a remarkable figure in his own right. Omar Bradley, who would go on to become a lifetime friend. Really, people like that who really rose to the top the very top of the American military establishment. These were the people that he was friends with, he was colleagues with. They were simpatico in terms of their worldview and this and that. So this was sort of the environment that he rose in. He became, I think, a brigadier general in 1941, the year that America entered the war. But in between, as I mentioned, he was getting to know all of these other folks who would rise to world fame and prominence during the Second World War. I suppose the most prominent of the folks that he served under was General MacArthur. They were in the Philippines, for example, for a certain amount of time. The relationship between MacArthur and Eisenhower, if you want to talk about that just for a second, MacArthur obviously was a rather pompous general, the son of a general himself. In fact, he was rather vain. He was a media hog. He loved to be in the newspapers. Eisenhower was much more humble, again, with the Midwestern humility that defined him. So from a personality standpoint, there was a clash, but Eisenhower served under him and sort of had to, you know, eat it for as long as they were together. After World War I, they continued to work together in certain ways. One of the most prominent ones was in the early 1930s during the Great Depression. There was a protest by army soldier, army veterans from World War I who had demanded a bonus pay from the war. They didn't get that money, so they descended upon Washington, protested. Herbert Hoover, who was the president between 1929 and 32. He did not want these army veterans. They were camping out on the mall and parks in Washington and so forth. Hoover ordered MacArthur and Eisenhower to clear them out, and they did. It was really kind of a disgraceful thing that they did, but they were following the president's orders. That was really one of the more prominent and, and frankly, I think, disgraceful episodes of Eisenhower in MacArthur's career, but that's what the president ordered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you don't win win friends among the ranks by doing things like that. But I guess if you're looking for greater things and you're climbing the political ladder one day, perhaps you should be following the president's orders. But Eisenhower does follow MacArthur to the Philippines, as you mentioned, and he, he becomes the military advisor 
to the new Philippine Commonwealth. Do we know much about that period? I can't imagine it was a an easy or a fun time for Eisenhower. Like you say, MacArthur himself is a personality, but he usually hired people who didn't have his similar demeanour or were searching for the limelight, and if they did start doing that, he got rid of them. I mean, the thing about MacArthur is he had his own, his almost his own PR team around him to make sure that he was the face of all the good things and the important things were happening. So do we know much about what Eisenhower was doing at this point? Well, you defined, I think, MacArthur pretty well. I mean, he was quite the, the media hog and, again, quite vain and this and that. He would, you know, have photographs taken in a particular way, all that. All of that Eisenhower found just rather distasteful, but he was Ike's commanding officer. There really wasn't much he could do about it other than just to, you know, keep his thoughts to himself. One thing that Eisenhower was sort of known for was that when he was at West Point, he learned to play bridge. It was quite a diversion for him. He played it almost every night, in fact. And when he was stationed in the Philippines, he played it regularly with the president of the Philippines, a guy named Emmanuel Quezon, I think. Uh, He played it so much, in fact, that he became known as, look, I'm just reading it here, the bridge wizard of Manila. The so that's, what, wizard that's of Manila. what he did. The bridge wizard of Manila. And during World War II, which soon followed, of course, one of the unwritten prerequisites to serve on Eisenhower's staff was the ability to play a good game of bridge. He liked to relax with his officers after hours. That was what he did. So if you could play bridge, you had a good chance of being elevated by Eisenhower to serve on his staff. So there were a lot of junior officers, I'm sure, who admired Eisenhower, wanted to serve under him, and learned how to play bridge in hopes of perhaps getting a uh, promotion. Even, I'm sure we're going to talk about the D-Day in a little bit, he even played bridge pretty heavily in the run-up to D-Day, just as a way of relieving stress. That's what he did. You mean you can imagine it, can't you? If I was a young officer at that point, I'd certainly be learning to master bridge. I mean, you don't want to be too good. Sure. You don't want to be beating Ike at bridge. No, You want to be showing you're a formidable opponent. That's right. You don't want to beat the boss, but I suppose you could every once in a while. Every once in a while, yeah. Let the boss win. Now, Eisenhower is drawn back from the Philippines because of the start of the Second World War. So how does he enter the Second World War? What rank is he? What's his first deployment there? Well, after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, he was assigned to the general staff in Washington. I don't want to say Pentagon because the Pentagon wasn't built then. Uh, He served until, I think, the middle of 1942. He was involved in drawing plans for both beating Japan and Germany. Just as a quick sidebar, the Japanese attacked in December 41, obviously, and uh, Hitler declared war on the U.S., just a couple of days after that, and there was a great debate in Washington, what should be the greater emphasis? Japan attacked us, maybe that should be the greater emphasis, or Hitler, who had, in 1941, of course, had been on the gates of Moscow and Leningrad was under siege, all of that. He controlled most of Western Europe, Britain obviously being the exception. But the decision was made by FDR to the relief of Churchill, that Germany would be the priority, not Japan. That helped guide the next phase of Eisenhower's career. At the end of May 1942, he went with General Arnold, uh, Hap Arnold, who we talked about before. They went to London. They did a quick study on the effectiveness of 
British defenses and things like that. He came back to Washington, was very pessimistic, saying he had an uneasy feeling about how things were going. He was then sent back to London as commanding general and head of the ETO, the European Theater of Operations. He was then promoted to lieutenant general, I think, in early July. And it was from there that the planning for really the great campaigns of World War II on the Western Front at least began. North Africa, which began in 1942, they formed something called the Allied Expeditionary Force. He was the head of that. They dropped the word expeditionary for security reasons. The campaign in North Africa, which was really Eisenhower's first major campaign that he led during the war, it was called Operation Torch. It was planned in these underground headquarters in the Rock of Gibraltar, and I think you can still visit what's left of the HQ that he had there. What's interesting is that, you know, the Americans were obviously a dominant, the dominant military force among the Allies during the war, no question about that. He became the first non-British person to command Gibraltar in about 200 years, I think, kind of a lesser-known aspect of his uh, career. Yeah, I, I didn't know that at all. But, you know, it's, it's not long before he leaves there and, and heads over to North Africa. And then, of course, as, as that campaign starts to go well, he moves to another rock and heads over to Malta, where you can again you can visit his command HQ there, which is just an amazing thing to go and see. It's been brilliantly preserved and revamped and brought back to what it was like when Eisenhower was there. You can go to his office where he commanded Operation Husky. What's interesting about that is that if you're familiar, listeners, I'm sure are familiar with something called Operation Mincemeat, which was this amazing bit of disinformation in the invasion of Sicily, which Eisenhower oversaw. There had been a plane crash near Spain, and what the British did was they had a uh, cadaver who they dressed up in a uniform and they attached a briefcase to his wrist with some phony papers that indicated that the Allies were not going to invade Sicily. The Spanish, who were ostensibly neutral, nevertheless found a way for the Nazis to read those papers. Hitler bought it hook, line, and sinker and thought that the Allies were going to go up through the soft underbelly of Europe and go up through Greece and that kind of thing. What's interesting is that Hitler wound up moving about a fifth of his army on the Eastern Front. The Nazis were up to their necks, of course, with the Soviets. Hitler wound up moving about a fifth of his troops from the Eastern Front, moved them into the Balkan area, Greece and so forth, which, one, weakened him, further weakened him on the Eastern Front against the Soviets, and two, allowed the Allies to invade Sicily with a minimum number of casualties. Eisenhower oversaw that. So that was really just an amazing thing. So by now, it's 1943 or so, he had had a couple of quite successful campaigns under his belt, he had the confidence by this point, the full confidence of President Roosevelt, and it was from this point that he was appointed uh, commander of uh, what would soon become, of course, the invasion of uh, Normandy, thanks to FDR and with the blessing of Churchill, who he was also quite close to by this point. He became the leader of that force, and which obviously became the, the most notable high point of his army career. But all of that was based on 
his leadership and success in North Africa and in Sicily and everything. So that all leads up to D-Day. And because Patton had slapped one of his own men at this point, who was suffering from what we think is probably now we'd call PTSD or war trauma, he slapped him in front of his men and was removed from from a leadership role, wasn't he? That's true. I suppose a lot of people are familiar with that anecdote by watching the movie about Patton, which came out in 1970. It was decided that Patton, who obviously was a brilliant tactician in the field, took on Erwin Rommel in North Africa, all of that, did not quite have the personality that FDR and Churchill were looking for. And again, we come back to the Midwestern values that Eisenhower had, the humility. He was a team player. Patton was sort of of the MacArthur mold that he was quite vain, this and that. So that's another reason why Eisenhower was given the role of overseeing overlord, not Patton. So it's a very interesting point you make about General Patton. But Eisenhower, for all of these characteristics that are instilled in his, his Midwestern youth, must be a man who has great belief in his own ability and incredible confidence because, you know, he goes up against Monty during this point as well. You know, Eisenhower makes a stand. He's in control of this and it pays off. I mean, if anything, if what happens during Overlord, during these days of the Normandy campaign, these cement his place in history as one of America's greatest generals, but they surely place him in a position that allow him to be propelled to the highest office in the land, if not the world. Well, confidence is obviously an essential element of leadership. Nobody wants to follow a guy who's not sure about where they're going. Eisenhower was uh, quite sure about the path ahead. One of the more interesting quotes uh, about him was that plans are useless, but planning is essential. He was a stickler about looking at every aspect of a campaign from every single angle. However, he knew that once an operation got underway, those plans could just go out the window in a hurry. There are just so many variables that can impact a battle. But nevertheless, planning was essential. And to your point about being confident, it's just not only was he confident enough in terms of how he was seen by those underneath him, he was actually confident enough to argue with President Roosevelt, of all people, about certain details leading up to D-Day. For example, they argued, and when I say argue, it was they debated is maybe the better word, but Eisenhower debated with Roosevelt over how to use Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of the French resistance, in terms of how much covert activity, how much uh, sabotage operations, uh, that kind of thing, uh, how much should they be deployed ahead of Overlord? What should they do? This and that. He also fought with the Ernest King, and again, debated, I suppose, who was uh, Eisenhower wanted uh, more landing craft for Overlord. They wanted to transfer them from the Pacific Theater. Obviously, MacArthur and uh, Admiral King said, no, we need them for our own battles here. Eisenhower also insisted that the British give him total command over strategic air forces that would, of course, support Overlord, this kind of thing. There's even one point where he and Churchill, again, they got along quite well, but they had their debates. Eisenhower reportedly threatened to resign unless Churchill gave in on that point. 
Eisenhower wanted to control all Allied air forces, including the RAF, and Churchill gave in on that. Imagine making a threat like that to someone like a Winston Churchill, who was also used to getting his way all the time. And so you have these two titanic figures kind of, uh, you know, battling out over a strategy. It's quite an amazing story. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting. Yeah. It would have been terrifying and fascinating all at the same time. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser-known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So take us past the Second World War. Many generals at this point are put out to pasture. They can't find a role for themselves. The US is no longer at war. Truman is seeking a kind of international peace through the United Nations. So what happens to Eisenhower? Well, there's a huge demobilization after the war, so much so that it caused a nasty recession in the U.S. between 1946 and, well, it really didn't end until the Korean War. And uh, Truman was barely elected in 1948 because of that. Eisenhower 
was appointed the military governor of the American portion of Germany. Germany, of course, was divided up among the American, the Soviet, British, and French. He, for a little while, was appointed governor of the American zone, was headquartered, ironically, in Frankfurt in the IG Farben building. IG Farben was the infamous company that produced a Zyklon B that was used in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. So he was now working in that building. He was involved with logistics for, I believe, the Berlin uh, Airlift, the Nuremberg Trials, which began in 1946, I think. And But what Eisenhower wanted to do, he wanted obviously the top Nazis punished, but he did not want the German people themselves to be treated as villains, even though a lot of them obviously worked in the war industry and this kind of thing. Eisenhower, sort of like MacArthur in Japan, by the way, kind of turned the other cheek and said, look, we've got to help these folks uh, rebuild and this kind of thing. So he does that for a couple of months, comes back to Washington in November 45, replaces Marshall as a chief of staff. And his main role was to help oversee this massive demobilization of the armed forces. I think there were something like 12 million Americans who were in uniform during the war. The population of the United States in 1945 was only about 135 million, I think. So about 10% of the country in uniform. But there's no war to fight. They've got to come home. So he oversaw all of this. And again, it turned into a uh, quite an economic downturn that really didn't end until the Korean War. As you explain all this, Paul, one thing that strikes me is that he must have been quite the strategic thinker, not just in the military sense, but also in the political and economic sense as well. To have the ability to spin all these plates at once and manage these massive missions and political undertakings, you can kind of see the makings of a president coming forwards. And am I right in thinking that once he had done all those jobs just after the war, he then does become president, but not president of the United States. He becomes president of Columbia University. That's right. Eisenhower, by the way, was identified as kind of a guy with presidential timber, not Ivy League timber, but I mean, presidential White House timber. As early as 1943, there was talk that, look, this is the kind of guy who could really rise to the top. But the first real leadership role beyond the military that he was involved with, as you say, was he was uh, president of Columbia University in 48. That was the same year, by the way, that he wrote a book about his time in Europe. The book was called Crusade in Europe. Even today, it's a really interesting and good read about how Overlord came together. It was a financial success for him as well, but it really helped spread his name around the country. It was a bestseller. You know, every politician running for president these days, feels the need to write a book to talk about themselves. Eisenhower did that without uh, no indication then that he wanted to run for president. He just wanted to write a book, but he did and helped kind of spread his name. And as a result of that, his name really started to become mentioned uh, as kind of a possible presidential contender. He had no political party affiliation at this time. He wasn't a, a Democrat, wasn't a Republican, at least nobody thought he was. And President Truman, who was a Democrat, wanted to get Eisenhower involved in presidential politics. 
One reason Eisenhower considered getting involved with the Democratic Party was because, again, General MacArthur, who he despised, there was talk that uh, MacArthur, a Republican, was going to run for president. And Eisenhower said, well, maybe I'll oppose him by running as a, a Democrat. That never happened, of course. But the struggle, the rivalry, rather, between Eisenhower and MacArthur was really never-ending. Yeah, and there were many generals at this point, I think, who had yeah. presidential aspirations and, and had the profile to match it. But Eisenhower's the one who comes through. But there's a stepping stone between being president of Columbia and president of the United States. And it's at this point, towards the end of the 1940s, when Truman realises that, you know, that international control really isn't going to work, that NATO is established. It's born like a phoenix out of the ashes of a failed UN army movement, and this is when NATO is formed, and uh, Eisenhower's brought in to, to step up to his next challenge. Yeah, when NATO was formed, I think the treaty was signed in 1949, Eisenhower offered to resign from Columbia. The trustees of the university thought he was doing such a good job, admired him so much, they declined his offer But uh, he left anyway. He took this extended leave to become the supreme commander of NATO. He was given operational command of NATO forces in Europe. So in essence, it was sort of a reprise of what he had done in Europe just uh, five, six years prior to that. He did that for about two years or so. Then he retired from active service in the middle of 1952, resumed his presidency at Columbia. So again, it's the summer of 1952. Uh, meantime, however, he'd become uh, the Republican Party nominee for president. He would go on to win in November. Just as a sidebar, Truman, as I mentioned, a Democrat, wanted Eisenhower to run as a Democrat. When Eisenhower came out as a Republican, this sparked a rift between these two, uh, both of these presidents, these were both great men, great presidents, and yet they had this clash. And when Eisenhower won the election of 1952 by a wide margin, of course, famously, the new president and the old and the departing president, rather, they ride to Capitol Hill together for the inauguration ceremony. They could barely talk to each other. Truman was so mad. Eisenhower wasn't particularly happy either. And they really went the rest of their lives without really talking at all, except for the weekend of the Kennedy assassination, when these, by now, both rather elderly men came to Washington to mourn President Kennedy, and they wound up riding in the car together, and they shared a drink for about an hour before going their separate ways. It's believed they probably never spoke after that, which is a shame, because I mentioned earlier, James, the C-SPAN survey ranked Eisenhower as the fifth greatest president. Truman was number six. So these are two just really great presidents and the country was lucky to have really in the middle part of the 20th century, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who, by the way, is ranked as the third greatest president, the third, the fifth, and the sixth all in a row. So America was quite lucky to have these three men But it's really a shame that there was a falling out between two of them, Truman and Eisenhower, really for the last part of their lives. That's a that's a shame. It is a shame. Who was number one? Well, Lincoln was one and uh, Washington was number two. Sometimes they go back and forth, but it's usually Lincoln. All right. That's fair. That makes sense. I suppose if I had to guess two, it would be those two. And then you've got FDR and who's for, oh, Theodore Roosevelt is fourth. And then you've got Ike and uh, Truman. Oh, well, there you go. 
But take us back to Eisenhower. So, 53, he becomes the president. He's a Republican. I don't know how he made that decision between the Republicans and the Democrats. I don't know if you know how, because does it give him a better chance of winning the Midwest? He's, he's from Texas, but Truman's from Texas, so that doesn't quite rub well. I don't know what calculations he makes, but take us through to his key years of the presidency, Paul. Well, one reason I think he became a Republican is that he had friends who he met in the army, but particularly at Columbia, he had ties to the oil industry and big businessmen. He wound up obviously appointing the head of General Motors to be his defense secretary. So he was very comfortable in the company of big industrialists, oil magnates, this kind of thing, which to me sounds more Republican than Democratic. I mean, back then, the Republican Party was sort of the party of big business and the Democrats were the party of organized labor and unions. I'm obviously making generalizations here, but uh, that was, I think, kind of the one reason why he gravitated more to the Republican side. But there was a period in the late 40s where nobody was sure, and he could have gone either way, but ultimately he became a, a Republican. It's strange to think. It, it, it is when, you know, nowadays you, you're very clear about the political lineage of the leaders that are elected, that you could have that point. Because there's those who argue that JFK could have easily have been a Republican as well, as opposed to just being a Democrat. But by the sounds of it, Eisenhower had the money behind him that meant that he could launch a campaign that would give him the presidency. Yeah, so that kind of that's makes... fair. That's a fair assessment. But he's not a president of peace. He comes into it in the midst of war. So tell us, what are the first trying, testing days for Eisenhower? Well, the Korean War broke out in June of 1950. It was not a declared war. The U.S. has not declared war on anyone, by the way, since 1942, despite all of the wars that we've been involved with. Anyway, it was as the casualties mounted up, Korea was just a terrible war. And I'll just say quickly that since Korea was sandwiched between World War II and Vietnam, it's often called the Forgotten War. Well, it should not be forgotten because in three years, some 36,000 Americans were killed, about 1,000 a month, which is just compared to in Iraq and Afghanistan, where casualties were far less than that, even though these wars dragged on for, uh, in the case of Afghanistan, for about 20 years or so, a thousand deaths a month in Korea. It was just a horrible conflict. It dragged, in addition to his economic problems, it helped drag President Truman down. He decided not to run in 52. Eisenhower wins, and he made a big pledge during the campaign that uh, he said, I shall go to Korea. It was a very dramatic statement that he uttered, and what he meant by that was, I will find a way to wind this war down. It's just killing us in terms of blood and treasure. We have to find a way out. So after being elected, he did go to Korea. It was a security nightmare. Imagine a president-elect wading into a war zone, but he did. It underscored, I think, his determination to end the fighting. And six months after he takes office, a truce was signed in the middle of 1953. And this is a key point here. There's no peace deal that was signed in Korea, just a truce to end the fighting. So to this day, nearly 70 years later, a state of war officially still exists in Korea. All that is there is a truce. So this very perilous state of war still to this day 
remains in place on the Korean Peninsula quite uh, interesting. So that's sort of what the first major thing he did was to stop the fighting in Korea. It's not a bad achievement. You're bringing, you know, we can't call it peace, but you can bring an end to active hostilities in Korea. Not a bad way to start your presidency. And I'd, I'd love to say it goes on to be a, a peaceful presidency, but I just don't think that's the case. Not only is he juggling with how best to devise nuclear strategy, and he's going up against people like General Curtis LeMay, who want to employ a counter-value strategy, creating thousands of nuclear missiles and bombs that will go against the Soviet Union and China. So he's dealing with that, how to create the delicate balance of terror in this new, increasingly hot Cold War world. But then he's got to deal with the rumblings of the next, you would call it perhaps, the limited war. We know it's not a limited war, it is Vietnam. So how does Eisenhower start to get embroiled, or start to get America embroiled in Vietnam? That's an interesting question. Vietnam was a French colony. The French were up to their necks in dealing with the communists. The communists in Vietnam, who sort of wrapped themselves up in kind of the cloak of nationalism, led by Ho Chi Minh up in Hanoi, they were fighting the French. They wanted to free Vietnam of all foreign influence. The French were really up to their necks they appealed to Eisenhower for military assistance. They wanted aid. Eisenhower turned them down. And in 1954, is really one of the huge events in the history of Vietnam was a battle called Dien Bien Phu, where the French were just absolutely routed. That was really the end of French colonialism in Vietnam. And the door was open for the United States, if Eisenhower so chose, to replace the uh, departing French with American troops and kind of stave off the communists there, he refused to do it. One thing that he and his nemesis MacArthur had in common was they thought it was folly for America to get involved in a land war in Asia. Korea obviously was one example of that. It was just a bloodbath. Eisenhower had no desire to get involved in a land war in Asia. Vietnam. There was an effort in Vietnam, which was split, I think, along the 17th parallel, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, to have a free and fair election to determine the future of Vietnam. Eisenhower actually, you know, it was quite ironic for uh, President of the United States, he opposed the free and fair vote in Vietnam because he thought the communists might actually win that vote. So he said, I'm not going to go along with that. And that sort of is the limit of his involvement in Vietnam. Yes, there were advisors that went to Vietnam, but it was not a, a huge American footprint there. President Kennedy, when he was assassinated, I think the American footprint in South Vietnam was about 16,000. I think it really wasn't until the Gulf of Tonkin and LBJ where the American footprint in Vietnam really, of course, began to ramp up. But Eisenhower, again, the military, uh, five-star general, was much more cautious about getting involved in a war 10,000 miles away, long supply lines. He simply refused to do it. And I'm painting with broad strokes here, but that was really sort of the big picture in terms of Eisenhower in Vietnam. 
And then as we move through to the 1960s and 1960 itself, Eisenhower's vice president, Nixon, is not elected in an incredibly close election against Kennedy. Kennedy is, and Eisenhower retires. But he doesn't really, does he? Because I've read that he goes on to advise Kennedy on what's perhaps happening in in Vietnam and how to help, and he continues to do the same with LBJ, all while he's meant to be retired and living the best years of his life. Yeah, let me get to that in just a second because we passed over a couple of things I think that were interesting about Eisenhower as president. He, We talked about Vietnam, maybe the more prominent example of his view about you know not getting involved in overseas conflicts. But Eisenhower's presidency was also known as kind of a hidden hand presidency. He pulled a lot of levers behind the scenes while trying not to be too visible about it. And I think the two prominent examples of that were he gave the CIA blessing to overthrow governments in Guatemala and perhaps more notoriously in Iran. You know, there's one reason why a lot of Iranians hate America today. It's because of American meddling in Iran seven decades ago. They have not forgotten about that. We, along with the British, helped to overthrow the Mossadegh government, install the Shah. The Shah would last, I think, until 1979. But that is what Eisenhower did. Of course, there's no way he's going to send in troops to these places, but he would use the CIA to kind of, you know, do some of this dirty work. The other main thing in terms of his involvement overseas were two things in the fall of 1956. Now, that's an interesting period, James, because he was up for re-election in 1956, and both of the two things I'm going to mention here occurred in October 1956, literally just a couple of weeks before the election. There was the Suez Crisis, in which the Israelis, the British, and the French teamed up to invade Egypt. Eisenhower forced all three of them to withdraw. It was humiliating for the British, humiliating for the French. And can you imagine a president today refusing to help Israel in wartime? But Eisenhower did. And literally at about the same time in Hungary, which was controlled as part of the Warsaw Pact under the thumb of Moscow, there's a revolt in Hungary against the communist rule. Soviets sent in the tanks, put down this rebellion in brutal fashion. And Eisenhower was called upon to, we've got to help these Hungarian freedom fighters. He refused to do it. This was also just two weeks before he was up for re-election. Can you imagine kind of the outcry if a president today refused to help either Israel or freedom fighters somewhere just a week or two before an election. Nevertheless, he wins by a landslide. Those are, I think, really interesting things about his outlook in terms of dealing with the rest of the world. One reason why he perhaps, uh, the pressure would be different on a president today, by the way, is simply because of the presence of things like network television and social media and the internet, which allows things like that to be kind of distributed quickly and more pervasively than I think was the case in the middle of the 1950s. Tell you what, Paul, we could dedicate a whole episode to, to <laughs> Eisenhower's covert wars. I'm going to get you back we on could. and we can talk about that at some point. Yeah, we could. But, but take yeah. us through to, to this man's retirement, because he never really does retire. But also, I find, it, I find it really fascinating and quite poetic that he ends up 
buying a farm by the edge of the Gettysburg battlefield to raise cattle and retire. He retires in 1961. He could have won a third term if the Constitution allowed it. He was enormously popular, but he was also 71 years old in 1961, going on 72. His health was not good. He had a couple of heart attacks and strokes, a major heart attack, in fact, in the 50s. He was eager to retire, but as you say, he didn't really retire. He consulted with President Kennedy on everything from the Bay of Pigs to the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 62. He consulted with Lyndon Johnson. When when Eisenhower was president, Lyndon Johnson was the Senate Majority Leader, so they obviously knew each other quite well. So they continued to talk throughout Johnson's presidency. Johnson retired in January 69. Eisenhower died in March 69. So for the bulk of the 1960s, they would continue to talk and consult. Eisenhower was, given what we had just talked about, Eisenhower's reluctance to get involved in Vietnam. He was privately critical of Johnson and his role in Vietnam. Of course, in the late 60s, there were more than half a million troops in Vietnam. So just a horrible situation there. Eisenhower was critical of that, but did not really criticize the president publicly. But behind the scenes, he was very disappointed with what Johnson had done in Vietnam. Yeah. And I think as, as history has shown, understandably so. Well, it means that his judgment maintained right until the end. And Paul, thank you so much for taking us on that journey from his birth in the 1890s all the way through until his death in the late 1960s. Quite the span of time. Tell us, where can our listeners read more about presidential and US military history and your work? Well, thank you for that. They can follow me on Twitter at West Wing Report. I'm a columnist for Dow Jones. I've got a couple of books out. One is kind of a general history of the White House. It's called Under This Roof. There's another book called This Day in Presidential History, another book called This Day in Military History. And I appreciate the chance to mention those. And I just want to say thanks to you for having me on. Paul, thank you so much. And you're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you. Talk soon. Thanks for listening. And if you're interested in American history, don't forget to check out our sister podcast, American History Hit. It's hosted by Don Wildman and has a mix of episodes on everything from Downton Abbey, The First Americans, The Oregon Trail, and The First Thanksgiving. Follow wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.